people are going to be writing about us for the rest of our lives probably, and after we're dead. So I intend to either confuse the issue so much they never knew what was going on, or to try and keep shoving out bits and bits. So as whoever is bothered to be looking at it in the future, the people that really know will sort out, you know, they'll know what was going on a bit. There's a lot of books about the Beatles and a lot of theories. And I try not to read them, and whenever I do, the first thing is like, oh, that's wrong. Everywhere you go, trying to find out any little bit of dirt that they can write about you. Beatles is Beatles, that Beatles, Beatles, Beatles. It doesn't matter, you know, what, what people say. You can't live all your life by what they want. Another Kind of Mind, a different kind of Beatles podcast by Another Kind of Mind. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to ACOM. Today, we're going to talk about the characters within the songs of Paul McCartney, specifically the female characters. Paul is somewhat set apart from his peers in that he not only has written many songs, with female protagonists, but several of those songs are amongst his best and most famous. Now, he certainly is not the only male songwriter to ever write about women. It's not even necessarily unusual nowadays. And obviously we have a lot of female songwriters writing about mm-hmm. women now. And also some of Paul's contemporaries from the 60s and 70s had female characters. Um, but Paul was and is especially good at writing from a female perspective, really getting into a woman's head rather than just drawing a portrait of a woman in a sort of male gaze kind of way, even though he does those songs too. Yeah. Paul's kind of an odd candidate for this particular gift since he's never been a flag-waving feminist and in fact he's often painted as a bit of a chauvinist in his beetle days yeah uh, which he would cop to he's admitted as much he has we'll have those conversations throughout the episode as needed as we talk about each song and we look at what each one conveys yeah this episode is not to condemn or exalt paul as like yeah a great per- a great guy or a you know a champion of women versus a sexist piece of shit right (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's not what this is about this is a study of his female characters yeah and so when we discuss that of course we'll discuss the types of things that are encoded into those characters he's the writer right right so a lot of his attitudes and beliefs trickle down into those characters so we will discuss that you know wherever they are problematic or you know right and wherever he gets it right yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So this isn't about spanking him or patting him on the head. It's just right. a study of his characters. Well, what I love about Paul as a writer of female characters is the empathy that he has. And right. that's why I was so interested in doing this episode is there aren't a lot of male writers that really do it, in my opinion, as well as he does. He gets that women are whole human beings. They're not just these objects or something for him to project something onto. And like you said, it's not like he doesn't write those manic pixie dream girl songs or those or those object of my desire male gaze kind of songs. Yeah, but for sure. 
It's just that so many of his story songs with women are really about them about them yeah like you get to look into a woman's life and i like that he chooses female characters just as much as he chooses male characters absolutely because it it definitely does convey that they are equally as interesting to him yeah well and i think paul finds women very interesting and he highly admires them even if he's not mr perfect feminist guy all the time He's an 80-year-old white guy. I mean, that's just... Yeah, yeah. there's some baggage that comes with that. There sure is. And we can't expect perfection. We do expect him to be on the right side of things. Yeah, Um, I I kind of feel like he is, so... I do, too. I do, too. He's had his moments where you you do want to kind of slap him. Yeah. (laughs) But you you kind of just want to slap sense into him, I think. Yeah, when Egypt Station came out, there was an interview he did with a woman just promoting the album and he started talking about blackbird and he was like you know bird like a girl and the woman was like don't you mean women oh no (laughs) yeah (laughs) and he kind of just was like oh yeah i guess you're right like his response was not defensive or anything he was like yeah yeah yeah." yeah. men of a certain age just called women girls forever and didn't there was no age where they referred to them as women yeah well and nowadays too and this is another thing that it's hard for for real older people to understand is that like you you just default on the side of woman if you don't know he could have been talking about a 13 year old girl i mean a 13 year old girl is not a woman no but but if you don't know it's easier to just say woman because you don't want to imply that you're talking about an 18 year old and you're calling her a girl you know yeah yeah, fifty-five um, year old girl. Like, yeah, yeah. it's but kind those, of tantalizing. <laughs> those things are kind of nuanced, and that's kind of hard to, you know, you have to learn that kind of stuff. Yeah, and the thing is, the further away you get from being like a young person, it's so hard to really know what's going on in the zeitgeist and be really oh, sure. super savvy about all that stuff. It's a lot to navigate. Well, you have to be an active learner and you have to make the effort to keep up. Exactly. Yeah. And it can be done, but it is extra effort. Anyways, you know, regardless of his intentions or or him being good or bad or nice guy or whatever, he's never been like a vocal feminist from a political standpoint. Right. We've never seen him out on the streets marching for the ERA. Although, to state the obvious, um, it is possible to support feminist causes and still be quite misogynistic. Mm -hmm. I've worked on enough campaigns and spoken to enough voters to know that mm-hmm. even if you're on the liberal side of the equation you can still be quite racist and quite misogynistic so yeah and they can and they do coexist right but anyways yeah. somehow paul has managed to both make some real knuckleheaded comments about the sexes and create female characters with a depth and dignity unusual to men of his age. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. And I think that's actually really fascinating that <laughs> yes, he has this right. baggage of internalized clueless, <laughs> clueless misogyny, I guess. Because it's, <laughs> it's not, he's never been malicious about it, in my opinion. Well, exactly. It's just dumb man cluelessness. Oh my God, Paul. It's just, I'd say tone deaf. Is when he does make yes, a comment, it's just tone deaf. deaf. I find it so fucking ironic that <laughs> Paul is. McCartney is so tone deaf about like <laughs> how to talk about social issues when he but he's be- like, the greatest composer. He's the greatest composer, and he also has a lot of empathy for people. 
from all different backgrounds and he cares about animal welfare and he cares about the environment and social issues (laughs) but he definitely you know you can tell he was raised in a in a conservative family Mm -hmm. by which I mean not just even his home but like his extended family yeah you can tell is fairly conservative and they really worked hard to instill their values in him also. Like, I, I think it wasn't a passive thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, they weren't just, like, passively conservative. They were, like, mm-hmm. very, um, very sort of passionate about what they thought was wrong and right. And some of that is conservative. Yeah. I think those are things he had to shed as he grew. Like, he definitely had to grow out of that upbringing. Yeah. I definitely agree. And I would say all of the Beatles had to, to an extent, because they all kind of had that, you know, a similar background. And then when they broke out of that and they exposed themselves to more stuff and met different people from, you know, different backgrounds and LGBT people and lots of different women that worked in all of these different fields, all four of them opened up. Here's a good example of something stupid Paul has said, um, and he recently got dragged all over Tumblr for this quote (laughs) from many years from now, published in 1997. He said, we didn't particularly like the girl adoration, although it was marvelous if you wanted a date. Mm. The main thing for us, first of all, was just doing our craft. We were genuinely trying to be artists. We'd actually comment on it. Hey, there's a guy in the front row who's really clocking all your chords. If we played a good bit, a new technique or an innovative riff, we saw that they noticed the guys were watching our guitars and our hands, not our legs and willies. That was what we liked. Oh, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot lot of problems with this comment. (laughs) So, first of all, way to take your primary fan base and just throw them under the bus, Paul. Right. Secondly, it was marvelous when you wanted to get laid. It's like, <laughs> fuck off. Right. Um, thirdly, not every female fan wanted to fuck you. <laughs> Number four, women can simultaneously want to fuck you or just lust after you and appreciate your music. Like, they can do yeah. that at the same time. And five, plenty of the dudes in the audience were looking at your dicks, too. <laughs> a, not all guys are straight. And B, straight guys like sexy dudes, too. Totally. So if you honestly think your sex appeal didn't extend to your male fans, then you're living in some kind of, like, no-homo fantasy land. It's just a dumb, it's just a dumb thing to say. But now, if he was here and we pushed him on all those points, I'm assuming my guess would be that he would concede all of them. Yeah. What he's saying is that the Beatles like being appreciated as artists rather than just sex objects, which is a perfectly reasonable, valid thing to say. But because of his stupid, poor choice of words, it makes it sound as if women are incapable of appreciating the Beatles artistically, and men are the only ones who are capable of doing that. Now, it is a fact that in the early days of Beatlemania, which is what Paul's talking about here, the screaming female fans were cited by critics as a reason not to take the Beatles seriously as artists. And someone like Dr. Christine Feldman Barrett, who specializes in this topic, could speak more on that. But this has been the prevailing idea since forever, that the, the screaming fans were not interested in the music. We can't pretend Paul's popularity with women hasn't been weaponized against him. Ever since the Beatles fandom became a male 
male-dominated thing. Paul's largely female fan base has been used by men since the dawn of Beatle geekdom as evidence of John Lennon being the serious writer and Paul the lightweight. Even Mark Lewison wrote in his book that the John girls were smarter than the Paul girls, which plays on this same bullshit idea that women care only about looks, which is why most of them like Paul, unless you're one of the rare smart ones, in which case you like John. Plus the very fact that Paul writes about women, you know, the subject of this podcast episode, and his famously dubbed granny music, both have been a club to beat him with since the late 60s. Now, would it have been better if Paul had said, you know what? Fuck male approval. I don't <laughs> give a shit about the entire <laughs> patriarchal rock establishment. Like, yeah, so that would have been a lot cooler. I really wish that he had said that. I wish that Paul didn't give a shit when any of these guys write. And I wish that so-called serious approval was not men's to dole out in the first place. Believe me. Amen. <laughs> And it's fine to drag Paul when he says stupid stuff. Like, we should do that. Mm -hmm. Agreed. (laughs) (laughs) And we do. We do! It is fine to call him out for stupid shit that he says. Listen, the Beatles fandom is 50 years old. There's a goldmine of stupid things that they've all said and done. Yeah. (laughs) That that are outdated and dumb. And, like, you could do this every day. And that's fine. That's what we do. Yep. Um. If you're in a fandom that's 50 years old, it's you're going to have to expect there's going to be a lot of this stuff. So yeah. it's fine. We don't mind um, dragging him from time to time. When you're involved in a fandom that is so old, that has a lot of baggage like this, and you're part of a group that's marginalized by society, you have to have these discussions to feel good about still being in this fandom, right? Absolutely. 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 Especially for the younger people. It is literally their job to call out what's wrong with this stuff Mm -hmm. and to drag these guys and to drag us and whatever, to drag everybody on a regular basis. Like that's what, that's what young people are supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a constant reevaluation of, of things that need to be corrected. Exactly. Because we got to keep moving forward. Mm -hmm. If if we're going to move forward, then that means we have to constantly evolve and we have to constantly be rolling the, you know, the boulder up the hill. Yeah, we have to be open to evaluating our own opinions from time to time. Exactly, exactly. So that means not just, you know, uh, busting on these guys, but like also like checking ourselves and yeah. and um, we're going to have to change like everybody and and even young people who think you're, you know. <laughs> you think you're like cutting edge wokeness you are now but you won't be in 20 years yeah 20 years you'll and have to do a reevaluation. Ex- absolutely you're going to look back on things that you said you're going to be horrified mm. so like um our old asses just, right now in middle exactly. age <laughs> exactly every time i talk to a 13 year old i'm like oh okay like oh thank you yeah thank something you to learn. yeah i've learned something new today <laughs> the yeah. point is that you can use the wrong words and you can say dumb yeah. things and you can be called out and grow and evolve. And we know that no one is perfect, including yeah. Paul McCartney. Exactly. So to kick off, we'd like to share a quote from Allison Anders. She's a film director and she's directed films like Gas Food Lodging, Mi Vida Loca, Grace of My Heart. A bunch of good TV shows as well. Yeah. So she said this in Bomb Magazine in 1997. I realized recently that I learned to write female characters from Paul McCartney. He wrote the best female characters. So varied. I made a whole tape for myself. Eleanor Rigby and Another Day and For No One. Especially McCartney's Another Day. 
that woman going through the drudgery of her day and being lonely and that guy fucking her and then leaving? Incredible that he got into a woman's head. I don't know how he did that. He wasn't even raised with his mother very long. She died when he was 14. I love this quote because it brings up a number of the things that we're going to be talking about today. Um, specifically, the variety of Paul's characters, some of the themes that he hits over and over again. And she brings up Mary as yeah. well, Paul's mother. She's a big deal. So we've definitely noticed some themes emerging in these women that inhabit McCartney's catalog. Mm -hmm. um, themes of loneliness, suffering, motherhood, a, a woman's workload, being unappreciated, undervalued. Um, Paul also takes time to reflect on and sing about older women, the elderly and also young women, too. Not just women in the um, sexually available age span. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> They're not all easily categorized. But one interesting category that we found <laughs> that a lot of songs kept falling into, I don't know how to explain it other than like the the spirit of a woman being crushed and women sort of fighting back. Yeah. Um, it appears in a few different songs. She's Leaving Home, Black Jenny Bird. Wren, Blackbird, She's Given Up Talking, mm -hmm. and Jet even. Yeah. Um, a lot of them are sort of women taking control of their lives, you know, empowering themselves, which again is, is really not a typical topic for men to write about. No, it really is not. Really not. <laughs> so we want to take a look at some of those songs now. And we're going to start with She's Leaving Home. Wednesday morning at five o'clock as the day begins. Silently closing her bedroom door. Leaving the note that she hoped would say more. Famously written in 1967. This is for the Sgt. Pepper album. Um, this is actually a co-write with John Lennon. He did help with uh, some of the lyrics. Yeah. I guess I would describe it as a young woman sort of taking control of her life and her life decisions and striking out on her own. And then simultaneously, it reflects the point of view of the parents and they're processing you know, the loss of, of their daughter. I think it's not especially judgmental. Mm -mm. of the parents yeah um it definitely doesn't take their side um but i like that it just sort of reflects their experience and their experience is kind of like they still sort of have a selfish point of view you know oh yeah how um, could she do this to me <laughs> exactly like they still aren't really thinking about her needs you know they're kind of looking at it in a self-centered way but at the same time you do kind of feel bad for them because they're obviously mourning the the loss of their child so it's yeah. um i like that it kind of doesn't demonize anybody on on any side you know yeah i'd have to agree with that it's um it's very compassionate towards the point of view of both sides where you know there's anguish in the you know the young woman's part because she realizes it's going to hurt them she just doesn't feel like she has another choice if she's to take control of her life and have real ownership yeah. over her future. 
because you know, she's feeling kind of shut in, maybe a little bit infantilized by her parents, um, not really allowed to grow or you know, expand her horizons or whatever. That really will crush your spirit if you just submit to that. But then yeah. you feel the anguish of her parents because they feel real loss for, and also fear because they don't know where she went. Um, right. They can't find her. She could be anywhere. So I don't know. I just thought it was really interesting that he held space for somebody in that situation in this song. And we don't really know why she's leaving or yeah. what happened to, to make her feel like she had to do this or if it's just time for her to emancipate. I mean, she just could just be ready to move on. Yeah. Um, they do say at the end that fun is the one thing that money can't buy, which does sort of imply that she, She's feeling stifled in the house. You know, she's yeah. not super happy there. Mm-hmm. But we don't know why that is. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, I have heard there's always the theory that, like, the man from the motorcade is giving her an abortion. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't really think there's any reference to that. No. Um, well, plus, if she were just going to get an abortion, why would she need to leave home? She could just come back when it's over. Yeah, exactly. They'd be none the wiser. I know, right? Like, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> That's true. You don't have to sever all ties with everyone you ever knew just because you terminated exactly. the pregnancy. Exactly. Like if you have, if you terminate the pregnancy, problem solved, right? Yeah. It's like, exactly. it's like you, you're still like you're ditching the baby, and you have yeah. to run away from it. You're more like back in those days. You're more likely to get shipped off to some faraway relatives if you keep the baby. If they can't, exactly. Yeah. If you have the baby, so. Yeah. Um, that's uh, that's just one of those, you know, beetle things. Yeah, yeah, one of those silly urban legends. Hidden clues or whatever. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, honestly, I think it's a pretty straightforward so song true. about youth, about a young woman who's standing up for herself, making her own decisions. I mean, again, it's, it's not as if Paul doesn't return to this theme several times throughout yeah. his career. I mean, it's yeah. a song that he likes to write. He likes the story of like, a young person, especially a young woman, standing up to her oppressors and sort of breaking free. Mm-hmm. Which I do too. Who doesn't? I do too, yeah. I mean, that's Everybody really empowering. That. <laughs> it's empowering, you know, as a young woman to listening to this. It's nice to feel seen when you're listening to music or consuming art. You feel like you see yourself in it. And it must have felt great in 1967. Oh my God. Yeah, like to young women back then listening to it who are trying to plan an exit strategy out of like their stuffy parents house (laughs) for really the first time i mean i don't know when did 17 year old girls i don't know why i said 17 that just seems like i she's always 17 in my mind well she was just 17 (laughs) you know what i mean (laughs) (laughs) maybe i guess um i don't know for some reason they both sound 17 but a very different 17 Mm -hmm. you know I mean, I think my dad was 17 when he moved out for the first time. Well, I don't think in 1967 a woman could, I, even a grown woman, you know, like a 21-year-old woman or whatever, I don't think could get credit card. a lease on her own. Yeah, no, you couldn't open a line of credit on your own. You had to have somebody co-sign. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's still a few years down the road. Yeah, that's in the 70s. Yeah, that's that's when another day. That's yeah. more of a, yeah, that's the another day <laughs> era. Yeah. But yeah, it's so heartbreaking. There's something about those chords. There's something about the way the melody is constructed that actually 
will like bring tears to my eyes if I'm in a certain mood, especially when I oh, listen to it. Totally. Oh, totally. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get at what he does. Yes. And then, then I feel like Jet is like a more pumped up, you know, 70s version of She's Leaving Home, yeah, right? Yeah, for sure. It's like <laughs> the power pop version of She's Leaving Home. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, we're not talking about the parents anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Paul gets to tell them off a little bit. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so Jet's the name of the horse. Yeah. And it makes me want to stab my eyeballs out when people are like, he named the song after the horse, so it's a song about a horse. Jesus Christ. No, it's a song about a woman's emancipation. And a horse is pretty good symbolism, don't you think? Yeah. Like, for his wife, who loves to ride horses, and, yes. like, that's where she feels free and in control, and Yeah, and it's like shit. a horse breaking free and galloping forward, too. Like, yeah. I love that he used that as inspiration. That's beautiful, right? I wonder if that son of a bitch wrote that song on a horse, like while he was horse. While he was riding, yeah, probably. <laughs> he probably did, right? He's probably like having a great ride, and he's like, "Yeah, I'm tapping into my female spirit." I love that line. I thought the only lonely place was on the moon. I mean, I know he's writing the song about Linda's experience, but being a witness to it, but also he's tapping into what it must have been like to experience that herself. When you drop a bomb like that on your family, to me, it's almost like everything around me disappears and I'm suddenly alone and I'm just kind of like waiting for them to react and time slows down and I don't know, that's kind of the headspace it puts me into when I think about it. Yeah, Jet's got a really good good energy. Whereas Blackbird definitely has a different energy, like a quiet yeah. uprising. Mm-hmm. It always reminds me of that Maya Angelou poem. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Rise. And I rise. You may write me down in history with your bitter twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still like dust I'll rise. Yeah, no, Blackbird does remind me of And I Rise. Just like moons and like suns with certainty of tides, just like hope springing high, still I'll rise. Do you want to see me broken, bowed down and lowered eyes, shoulders falling down like teardrops, weakened by my soulful cries? By Maya Angelou from 1978. Definitely that's the energy of Blackbird for me. I'm surprised <laughs> I, I'm surprised I'm the first one to say that. It's so obvious to me. I think it every time I see it. People always link Jenny Wren to Blackbird. I mean, I, I see why <laughs> there's a bird in both titles. Yeah, I was about to I, say the, the really most simplistic reason. But um, <laughs> they're really not the same. No, they're, they're, they're quite really, different. They're really, they're really very different. And Blackbird is, like, uplifting. Yeah. Jenny Wren is depressing. Relatable, yes. Depressing, definitely. Unlike a lot of McCartney songs, actually, because even his sadder songs usually have an optimistic twist to yeah. them at some point. And Jenny Wren is one that really doesn't. No. 
How we spend our days casting love aside, losing sight of life day by day. There's no upside to that. Well, and even the end, you are kind of fooled into thinking that's somewhat hopeful, but the day will come, Jenny Wren will sing, when this broken world mends its foolish ways. Human progress kind of ebbs and flows in these cycles, so things will get a little more progressive and egalitarian for a while, and then things yeah. will backslide. And Yeah, it's, yeah. it's true. So, And the everyday person is absolutely powerless yeah, for all it's of rough. Us. It is. Yeah, it's not a happy song at all. It's not an optimistic song. Like in Blackbird, there's hope. And in this one, it's like, nah, it's probably not going to get better. The most devastating line, I think, is wounded warriors took her song away. Because somebody's song is like their hope for a lot of people who have nothing. Yeah. Hope is all they have. Mm-hmm. So taking somebody's song away is very, very bleak. Mm-hmm. I believe this song was inspired by Heather Mills. Mm-hmm. I believe he said that at some point, sometime. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a lot of people's real lived experiences. And I love that he as an artist is able to tap into that. Paul seems to have a really high level of admiration for working women. I mean, he worships working women. I mean, most of his songs are about working women. Yeah. And his mom was a working working mom, you know, like she was. Uh, Yes. Yeah. They're about moms, working women, and sometimes working moms. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's his um, archetype is, is like a working mother. Yeah. And he does respect hard work. We know that for sure. Absolutely. You know, he bragged about that with uh, Linda just endlessly about Mm -hmm. how much work she did. Yeah. I think there's a negative way to look at that. If he's like, you don't do anything and be a trophy wife, then he gets criticized for that. Right. If he wants his wife to work hard, then it's like, oh, you're just working this poor woman like a slave. Yeah. Yeah. There's no winning. (laughs) Yeah. Like you can't please everybody. Uh, and then, like, not every working woman situation is the same either. It, like, some women work part-time and have a family. So, you know, there's all sorts of different arrangements. Or, like, the way Linda worked when they were together was artistically, with him and independently. Because she had her photography, but she also was with the band. And later on, she was an entrepreneur. Well, so. yeah. And she did a lot of work as mom, yeah. too. I mean... Absolutely. Um, well, oh, and that's another thing, too, that people forget is like being a mother and keeping a household is a job and it's a legitimate job. You know, people are really dismissive and shitty about that. But the whole oh, world yeah, runs yeah, on yeah. unpaid women's labor. Like, well, if, no shit. If we didn't have that, everything would fucking fall apart and everyone knows it. Linda worked an ungodly amount. You know, yeah. she was oh, always God. working. But Paul works like a fucking beast, beast. Yeah. all the time. <laughs> He's so a workaholic. I understand that he wants somebody who can also work like a beast. That's just that's just him. That's just what he wants. You know, apparently yeah. she was up for it. So, yeah. <laughs> well, and, you know, thinking back to his first major relationship with Jane, she was also a hardworking person, too. Like she was grinding like crazy. He said that she he was astounded by how busy her diary was, like her calendar. And he just kind of was in awe of that. 
Have you seen the uh, Standing Stone documentary? Yes. So the Standing Stone documentary, Paul's talking about, you know why I love choruses? It's because you get all walks of life. <laughs> and he seemingly at random names some everyday people. And he's like, a gynecologist, a midwife, an obstetrician, like, a plumber. A plumber. <laughs> That's Paul's impression of normal people. <laughs> Plumber and then like three women's health professionals. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's the general public to Paul. <laughs> I don't know. What do men do? What kind of jobs does a man have? My mother Mary was a nurse and a midwife just after and during the Second World War. So I have a lot of time for the doctors the nurses, and all the medical staff to keep us healthy. We love you. Thank you. So work, women's work. This is a big theme in McCartney's canon. Um, women's work both in and out of the home. Sometimes he doesn't make a distinction between the two. It's, it's not really even known if Lady Madonna has a job outside the home. Yeah. It's, the point is that she's always working. Yeah. And as a mother, she's going to always be working whether or not she works outside the home. And then there are songs that are actually about the workplace, such as Another Day, It's Not On, Temporary Secretary. <laughs> 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 and um, an interesting song called Working Women at the Top from the Liverpool Oratorio also. So first I want to talk about It's Not On and temporary secretary. Mm. And the reason I group them together is because I can't think about one without thinking about the other. <laughs> yeah, and they are from the same era. Yeah, they are. And they're talking about the same subject. They're just kind of taking a different approach. They both are exploring sexual harassment in the workplace that women are subject to. But the first one, it's not on, is more serious. And the perpetrator of the harassment actually in my interpretation of the lyrics, faces negative consequences as a result of his actions um, because he's invading a woman's space and it's he's disciplined in some way, right? He, I took it yeah. as... He, he got, has consequences. Yeah, he has consequences. Um, temporary secretary is a creepy boss who <laughs> yeah. puts it out there that he's a creepy boss, but it's like a caricature of, you know, a creepy boss that is like, yeah, I want a woman who's going to sit on my lap and type, make me coffee, <laughs> give me blowjobs yeah. under the desk. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a parody that it's funny. Well, I don't know that um, I don't know that I that I would call it's not on serious. I mm. think I might I might quibble with you on that. That's fine. Sure, quibble I think, away. I think both of them are really absurd and bizarre for sure. Yeah. Like it's not on is straight up weird. My knee, young man. Yeah. Um, oh, no, I don't disagree with that. I do think it's weird and <laughs> wild. <laughs> it is. It's like, first of all, what is that melody? He puts like a early era vocoder on his voice to do the, the female voice or something. Yes. And um, even the narrative is a little, it's a little obscure. Yeah. 
you, you can't say a hundred percent that you know what happened in this song. <laughs> My favorite line, hands down, is Irene E is his fiance. Yeah. <laughs> fiance is not a word. It's not. <laughs> Irene E is obviously made. To rhyme with that fake word. His prospects never will be great while bosses underestimate his value. Arnie says. The the fiance is like, Arnie, he's stupid. (laughs) It's not the company's fault. It's Arnie's fucking fault. Yeah, Arnie, you're the problem. (laughs) Arnie, the problem is you, okay? I say this with all the love because I am your fiance. Like, it could be Irene A is his fiancé, but He no. really totally could have. But then he, he wouldn't be able to say that she'd hate to disagree. I know, but how important is that line? No. Hate to disagree. Like, he could fix it. He could put something he's else being, in there. He's a songwriter. He's being a big, fat weirdo. Yeah. He's he's I think sometimes weird. he just likes to be weird. He totally likes to just be weird. He wrote that and he was like, huh, yeah, I'm keeping that. <laughs> <laughs> It seems like he gets demoted. Well, yeah, because it it references the lady in green from the first verse. Well, he's definitely called into the office and confronted about his sexual harassment. Like, she she filed a claim that he has to answer to. That's definitely true. Um, Mm -hmm. And he says, take your feet off my desk, young man. So he's definitely in trouble. Yep. Wouldn't you join us? What can you start as a driver looking the part? Hang on, says Arnie. This just isn't done. So not exactly clear, but Mm -hmm. maybe that's not the job he wanted. Maybe he wanted like the manager job and they were like, you're a driver, Arnie, at best. Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of a tough one to crack, but that's kind of what I got out of it, too, is the sexual harassment led to a demotion of some sort after the claim was filed because he's not pleased when he's asked when can you start yeah unless unless they're both in the office and the job is offered to the woman yeah rather than arnie oh yeah he's like he's like wait a second I mean, I you can't give her the job. Yeah. yeah, I wanted that job. I like the take where she gets the chauffeur job. Yeah, and she wanted it. She's like, ha ha. And then temporary secretary. I mean, that song is just... <laughs> what <laughs> can you say about temporary secretary? It's... I mean, it's a fucking banger. It's crazy. It's a crazy it's a, song. It's, it's one of the best. It's, it's one of yeah. the best monstrosities that he has ever created. Yeah. <laughs> I think temporary secretary is... Paul. He's channeling himself Mm -hmm. and he's just restless and horny and he just is like please just send me a sweet young thing in here for a couple of weeks and then you can get rid of her and it'll be fine and I will be nice to her and I'll never call her again (laughs) and you will never see her again and we can give her a nice severance package. That's truly what I get out of it. He's just horny. I mean... It's better than actually getting one if you write a song about it. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Writing a song about cheating is just nothing. That's not that's not a crime. Yeah, it's just a song. I mean, maybe it was just a way to get that fantasy out of his mind, and then he's. Oh, uh-huh. yeah. I think. Yeah, and then he's like, "Okay." I mean, he has a song on the album called "Secret Friend" for crying. Oh out yeah, loud. like come and be my secret friend. <laughs> like come along with me to my dark room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Seriously, <laughs> like the whole album is he's just like, I'm horny as shit. Yeah, like somebody please come have a freaky affair with me. Basically. Yeah. Yeah, he's like, I'm going to leave the door unlocked. I really don't even care who it is. Just yeah. come into the studio and leave in the morning. Yep. <laughs> Whether or not it was intentional, to me it comes across as like a caricature of a creepy boss, but it's also a commentary on you know. Oh yes, yeah. No, I think it's that too. I, yeah, I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I think it's I think it's both. Yeah. Well, because it's also kind of a little scary too, like the, the sonic atmosphere of the music. It's like funhouse madness, you know, because it's like a predatory boss. Temporary secretary Paul is creepy. Um. <laughs> Paul being a horny creep. Yeah. Playing the part of a horny creep, but <laughs> tapping into his horny creep to do so. Yes. <laughs> Every day she takes a morning bath, she wets her hair. Wraps a towel around her as she's heading for the bedroom chair. It's just another day. Slipping into stockings, stepping into shoes, dipping in the from the ram sessions it's not on ram but it's a single released before ram denny sywell later the drummer with wings and also the drummer on ram referred to it as eleanor rigby in new york city which I love that, actually. That's really cool. <laughs> One thing I love about this song, though, is there's so many different little things to unpack in it. So to me, it's a professional woman. She has a decent job. She's supporting herself. She's just living and making her way in the world. But she gets lonely. Everyone gets lonely. Yeah. Um, human condition. Yeah. She has a decent amount of success on her own, but wouldn't it be nice to have somebody to share that with? You know, and she deals with kind of dips in her mood. And that's a very human experience. I, another thing I see in like the fight for equality and equity for women is that we always have to defend our right to have any kind of emotions. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> we can't be... You can't show any emotion. You have to be logical and impartial and objective. Otherwise, Ooh. men just completely disregard your point of view because you got emotional. Men have emotions too. It's just that like gross patriarchal society trains them to suppress their feelings. And the only acceptable emotion is anger for a man to express. Emotions are the cornerstone of human experience. They're not gendered. Yeah. Um. You know, we're just like society's gender binary is socially grooming us all to emote in certain ways. But, you know, like my point of going over all that is just to convey that this woman who is independent still has a right to feel longing for another human being to share her life with. And what I like that it, he goes through how it feels when you are single and you're excited about meeting someone and you feel like there's a spark and you're getting to know them and you go on a few dates and then they ghost you. That's yeah. such a fucking high followed by an immediate low, which the music does an excellent job of conveying that too. You know, this woman has a complexity to her. She swings back and forth. Sometimes she's doing fine. Sometimes she's sad and lonely. It's normal and we can empathize with her. And then um, the music is swinging between kind of the high points and low points of her life too. 
Or so sad, so sad. Sometimes she feels so sad. Like, that's just genius at, at conveying what that person's going through. Lauren Stuber said that playing Another Day was like playing Bach. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty complex. <laughs> I can't really expound on that, but... Yeah. Oh, the time, actually. The time signature changes are really cool. Where the verses are in 4-4, four, four, and then it goes into 3-4 for the so sad, the chorus part. It's an amazing device and kind of the high notes to the low notes to the high notes. It's really lovely. I mean, to me, it kind of evokes Pet Sounds era Beach Boys, not in the actual song construction, because the song construction is total McCartney, very, very different from Brian Wilson. Mm-hmm. Um, what I mean by that is, you know, where Brian Wilson sings, sometimes I feel very sad. That's what it reminds me of, where he's just saying that over and over again. You know, people who just want to be critical would say those aren't great lyrics. To me, those are great lyrics. Yeah, I mean, you got to sing it the right way to sell it, but... Yeah, and he does. Both of them do. When you're single for longer than maybe a year or two... You want to (laughs) be? Yeah, you know, and you're ready to find someone and it keeps not happening for you... It's like, really, again? And then every little bit of intimacy you have with someone and then they leave, it just highlights how lonely you are. I feel like loneliness is kind of one of Paul's fears. I feel like he mm. has said that. Yeah. Um, and he writes about loneliness. It's kind of a recurring thing. And I think yeah. he likes to use female characters to talk about that loneliness, like mm. for whatever reason, it feels most comfortable for him, most comforting, I guess. Yeah. Um, again, not to make this the, the Freudian episode or whatever, but you know, <laughs> like if we're talking about loneliness and sadness at missing someone, it's yeah. easy to take it back to his mom. Yeah. Well, I do think that's an appropriate link because he misses her. Yeah. And then so using the women as a way to process channel his, that. Yeah, channel yeah. his fear of loneliness. And just yeah. his pain that like, you know, we've talked about ad nauseum that he wasn't allowed to express as a mm. person, as a boy and as a man. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason throughout his entire life, there were circumstances and people around him where he didn't quite feel comfortable. Well, no, I don't want to say that because that's unfair to Jane because he said that he did like yes. Jane was yes. a good confidant for him in that. Like he could vent That's to her true. and she That's would listen true. to him. Yeah. And he felt and very was, comfortable. Right. And that was one of the things that really bonded them was that he did open up to her and talk mm-hmm. about his his mother's death. So yeah, he trusted her with that. So he could open up to certain people. It's just that there were also people in his life that I think it would have been great and healthy and helpful if he could have felt comfortable, but for whatever reason, he didn't feel safe with them. But again, I think mostly those people are women. Those people are, you know, mm-hmm. his girlfriends and maybe occasionally like a friend or, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah female friends. So again, and it's and it's not, it's definitely not uncommon for people to get emotional support from women. Both women and men get emotional mm-hmm. support from women. That's not, you know, yeah, a secret. Yeah. <laughs> it's not <laughs> uncommon. And there's yeah. not even anything wrong with it. It's just um, definitely traditionally that's that's where men would place all their emotions i mean we talk a lot now about like the emotional labor that women go through especially wives and Mm. you know women in relationships 
with with men or women really but yeah. um especially with m- women who have relationships with men yeah um because uh men typically don't have a lot of other men in their lives who will do that emotional labor for them or with them yeah yeah exactly so a lot of that falls to women yeah that is true and i feel like I love that point about emotional labor and about men feeling like they can't turn to other men. Like they always have to turn only to women. <laughs> like they can't turn yeah. to each other for emotional support. And that is changing a lot now. For you, sure. Definitely. Like, that's a really heartening thing to me as a woman to see more young men being more emotionally intelligent with one another. Cause that I think can help get rid of toxic masculinity right. over time. And that can exactly. make you know men more empathetic towards women too. Mm-hmm. Regardless of who you're Spectrum. having yeah. sex with, like you need to yeah. be able to get emotional support from your partners, but also from, from your friends. friends. Yeah. Well, especially when you don't have a partner yet. So if you can't turn to your friends, who are you going to turn to? I think sometimes that's why guys push themselves to get into a serious relationship really quickly when they're young because they want somebody to have emotional support. Yeah. And then women end up doing all all that work and sometimes (laughs) not or traditionally, you know, back in the day or whatever, not necessarily getting that back because most of the time, in most cases, men don't know how to give it back. They weren't trained to do it. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to do it and they weren't ever expected to do it. Well, and then what's really sad is you get older men who are widowers and they end up not living that much longer because they don't keep those social connections up that their female right. partners kept up. Exactly. So they don't yep. go to family stuff and like they don't do anything anymore. If you can't rely on your friends, if you don't have friends that you that do emotional work for right. you and then we'll come check on you and be the first one to call sometimes. And yeah, they don't even it's not that they don't want to do it. It's they don't know how. Yeah. Right. I mean, the suicide rate is highest among men between whatever it is, 45 and 60 or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Which is super, um, yeah. Which is very sad. And again, <laughs> we're talking about older generations of of men, not necessarily young men of yeah. today. The people who grew up with what I would call the traditional old school right. arrangement yeah, of yes. family. The people in McCartney's era. Yeah. Our fathers and grandfathers and and whatnot. Yeah. The thing that I really love about this song, what I think makes it just so lovely as a piece of work, is all the details in it. Yeah. He describes every little detail of her day and what she's physically doing. It's just poetry. The wet yeah. hair, the towel, the bedroom chair, the stockings, the shoes. The, yeah, sticking her know. hand in the pocket. I see the street she's walking down. I see the the bus she gets on, the city yeah. she's living in, and the office she goes into. I have a picture of the office. And- gorgeous vocals from Linda. Gorgeous vocals from Paul. Amen. Talia, how many of the, of the Apple secretaries wondered if this song was about them? Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't really suspect that it's, a, it's inspired by any of the Apple secretaries. Yeah. I'm just saying, if I had been an Apple secretary and I heard this song, I would freak the hell out. I don't know where it came from. Like, I think it just, I wish I had more of a background of it. You know how Paul is. He's like, yeah. oh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> like, That's all you have to say about this amazing song? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it just came out of my brain. Anyways, yeah, we don't really have a good quote about uh, another day, except for, of course, the quote that we kicked off the podcast with from Allison <laughs> Anders, which honestly, 
Alison Anders' quote is better than anything Paul's going to give us. Yeah, I think so too. I think Eleanor Rigby is historic because it's melding classical and popular music sensibilities. Big departure for the Beatles at that time in 1966. And definitely not something that was going on in in pop music at all Mm -hmm. at the time. And hasn't really since, too. It's not as as if from that point all the pop stars started to write classical music. Like it really did not happen. So it's kind of an anomaly, although we don't really think of it as an anomaly in the Beatles catalog. You know, Mm -mm. we just consider it part of what makes the Beatles, the Beatles. It's like yesterday, you know, because they're really very, they're very McCartney songs, right? Mm -hmm. They are. And they're such a identifiable and natural part of his canon. And, part of how we identify him as a songwriter and Paul is the main artery of the Beatles. So they don't feel out of place in the Beatles catalog. They just feel like part of what makes up the Beatles because Paul makes up a lot of the Beatles, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So, um, but it is really unique for popular music, right? Especially at the time. Part of it is not just the classical influence, but it's the subject matter. Mm-hmm. Writing about loneliness, but also writing about fictional characters. Yeah. And to have that song centered on an elderly woman is just really revolutionary. Like, that is yeah. so not rock and roll at all. Yeah. And he was like, what, 24? Seriously. Yeah. That's amazing. The such a young guy, you know, kind of at the top of his game and could have seven women a day. And, you know, like he didn't have to be thinking about old people. He really yeah, didn't. Like, it's really anti-rock and roll it, it, in like a way that, you know, like we talk about when movies are subversive or experimental, they're anti-Hollywood. This is really an anti-rock and roll song for the Beatles to do. Mm-hmm. And... Paul McCartney in the 60s and for the rest of his career is very anti-establishment rock and roll in Mm -hmm. so many ways. And this is like the most powerful way because this is really him at the height of the Beatles popularity in the 60s in his youth when, you know, again, he's a hot-blooded young sex symbol or whatever then <laughs> he's writing songs about fucking lonely old ladies it's amazing <laughs> it's he's amazing. amazing he's unquestionably one of the most interesting figures in rock and roll history and i'm so confused every day that i wake up <laughs> i'm so confused why nobody is is, is fascinated with him it's very weird to me. very it weird. is weird i don't understand it either Paul gave an interview to Record Collector magazine in 2007 in which he was asked about this song. Mr. Jonathan Wingate asks, With a song like Eleanor Rigby, surely you were creating a character. And Paul says, Well, I was creating a character, but in actual fact, there were a few of those sort of ladies that were in my life, pensioners who lived on an estate around where I lived. And in fact, there was an old lady there I used to go and get her shopping for her. It was just 
something I enjoyed doing, I'd drop in and say, do you need anything? (laughs) The great thing about it was that I learned about her life instead of just all my mates at school. So it broadened my outlook on life. I remember this particular lady when I was living in Fortland Road in Allerton. I would go to the shops and drop off at hers, and she had a little crystal radio crackling, which is something from the old wartime days. People used to make their own radios. I used to marvel at how she could make a radio, which a lot of people had done. I suppose it was just the necessities of wartime. I thought, I must try and learn how to do that one of these days. What a cool thing to do. It had a pretty good reception, too. I would learn those kind of things through people like her. So she would become one of my Eleanor Rigby's, and I would then change the names, you know. And then he said, well, there are a lot of those characters around. And Paul says, there were a couple. There was one that I remember in the center of Liverpool, near where John Stewart had an art school flat. Again, she was sort of Eleanor Rigby, and I suppose I just noticed these lonely old ladies. I tell you what it was. My dad brought us up really well that way. I was kind of blessed to have that in my dad. He was very cool that way. (laughs) If we ever got on a bus, he would make you stand up. If you saw an old lady tottering on with her heavy bags, you felt good because it didn't matter to me whether I sat or stood. I was a kid and I had bags of energy. (laughs) Bags. I've never heard bags of energy before. Bags of energy. (laughs) You did have bags of energy, you big freak. We had little school caps in those days, and my dad would always make us raise our caps because he raised his cap. He's very old school, you know. So I feel quite sort of privileged to have known that generation of people, and you learn from them. I just think it's a cool thing. So those sorts of ladies became Eleanor Rigby. Okay, it was a fantasy. I didn't actually know who picked up the rice in the church. Yes, we get it, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) But I kind of knew those old ladies. So I suppose the reward for doing these little good deeds was that later I'd have a little memory pool to draw on when I was writing Eleanor Rigby. So there was a payoff. I love that Paul's like, the payoff was that it enriched my life. (laughs) Yes. By knowing them. Yes. (laughs) I love that. I like the story of him marveling at an older woman being able to build her own radio and him wanting to learn how to do it. Older women are treated like trash and discarded and treated as you're not. Society's garbage. (laughs) You're not young and fuckable anymore. So therefore, we don't want to see you or hear from you. And he valued them as human beings who he could be friends with. And I think that's really cool. They were mentors to him. What a unique person he is. Like, what what an interesting boy he was. Yeah, I think it's amazing. I can't believe the Beatles had this person in it. And we don't know anything about him. We have never seen movies of this kid. We've ne- I have never read books about this kid. Paul McCartney's going around hanging out with old ladies and bringing them groceries and like playing with their crystal radios, talking to them and listening to their stories and shit. Why the fuck do we spend so much time on all this other dumb shit in the Beatles stories? It is such missed opportunity. Those experiences obviously gave him like real life experience and real life empathy yes to create these characters from the fact that he was capable of empathy when he was so young for a population of people that 
for all intents and purposes, society did not give a shit if someone in his demographic cared about them. Well, and then thinking ahead to Hamburg, he became really good friends with Rosa, who is an older woman who's like the restroom attendant or something. I know. Yeah. And didn't he stay at her house? That's so interesting. Why isn't that featured? I don't give a shit about the love triangle with with Stuart and Astrid and John. And I want to hear about Paul and Rosa. I want to hear about this really interesting guy who's like having a different experience from these other people. Yeah. But there's nothing sexy about his experience, I guess. Or there's nothing rock and roll about it. That's for sure. Yeah. But then again, it's... Almost more subversive. Someone who's responsible for not necessarily the creation of a new youth culture, but at least the perpetuation of the fact that there is a youth culture going forward. And that that idea of there being a youth culture in society remains, you know, kind of a mainstay pretty much worldwide from the 60s onward. Like, for that person who's at the forefront of that to be like, yes, but I also still value the older generation. And I think there's a lot we can learn from those people and we should respect them. I think that's really nice. And it's cool. It is. And, I, you know, hopefully people can see the value in it now. Yeah. There's just something really mature about him. Y- yes. You know, for practical reasons, mm-hmm. him being the eldest child and... Yeah. Of course, his his mom dying and the responsibility that he's, he has to take on because of that, too. So some yeah. of that ex- is external. But I also just think he's thoughtful and empathetic by nature. You I know? think so, too. Treat her gently. Treat her kind. Treat her gently, lonely old people is another old lady song. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is from 1975's Venus and Mars. It espouses compassion, patience, empathy. It's really grown on me. Yeah, Um, me too. When I first heard it, I thought it was him talking about, like, treat your partner gently. But I think it's actually about treat your mom gently when she's getting older. Be compassionate about that. Like, your parents aren't going to remember everything because they're getting older. You know, just be patient. Like, they were patient with you when you were growing up and learning how to do stuff, and now it's time for you to be patient with them. Definitely. Yeah. It's like a precursor to Veronica, you know? Yeah. Which is another great character song um, that Elvis Costello wrote and Paul Paul helped. Yeah, our next episode will be about Elvis Costello's female characters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was abroad, and I asked for a cup of tea. Now, if you're in England, you say a cup of tea, and they know what you mean, but if you're abroad they say what kind of tea but you have to say English breakfast tea and then you'll get a cup of tea Um, and I've got quite a few friends um, and I'm thinking of a particular sort of older lady who's uh, posh and I noticed that when she talked she just had other phrases so whereas I might say would you like a cup of tea she would say would you care to take a cup of tea so I started noticing these little phrases. Once I got into this world of sort of uh, eccentric old English uh, ladies. Um, Would you care to sit with me for a cup of English tea? Very twee, very me, any sunny morning. English tea is, it doesn't 
precisely fit in, into this theme mm-hmm. because he kind of just assumes the role of the person speaking and you know it's like a fruity British person but you don't even necessarily <laughs> know that it's a woman or yeah. that it's not him you know like yep. it could be Paul just talking goofy <laughs> like he's it like just sits cute. down at his piano and he's like today I'm an eccentric posh old English lady <laughs> British woman All yeah because right, the only the only reference to a, the old woman in the song is nanny nanny bakes fairy cakes every Sunday nanny morning bakes. I love the song I think it's great I do too oh it's beautiful yeah, it is, it is very beautiful. Every time he does that, I'm like, thank God you still do those. You know, like, first of all, nobody can write those songs like you. Yeah. Really. Definitely nobody can still write those songs like you. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. no coward is long gone. <laughs> <laughs> Cole Porter isn't around anymore. Right. Like, thank God that yeah. you still are like, hey, you know what? I'm good at this. So fuck off. I'm going to go write one. And you, like, <laughs> put one out every so often. So as everyone listening to this podcast knows, and as we mentioned earlier in the show, Paul's mother Mary passed away from breast cancer when Paul was 14. And she appears in many of his songs, consciously and unconsciously, maybe. (laughs) Paul worships her in the way that kids look up to their moms, especially, you know, I can't even imagine losing your mom at 14. Oh, God. Obviously, he's turned her into St. Mary, you know? She was the bedrock of the family. She was the foundation. She was the breadwinner. She kept them all together. Yeah, Um, like she was a stalwart pillar of their family. And that is Paul's ideal woman, and that's what Paul expects from a woman. Yeah, he wants someone solid and reliable, but he also wants somebody who's very loving and nurturing. Yeah, she is the ultimate role model to him. Mm -hmm. She is the archetype. Yeah, and she forever shapes what he's looking for in a woman. Well, and what he expects from women and yeah. what he probably expects from his daughters, too. I mean, yeah, she's like the ideal person to him, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like if you take gender out of the equation at all, just all of those character traits are pretty decent traits for any human being to have. Being hardworking, being reliable and solid, having your head on straight, being compassionate. So... Yeah, I can see why he really admired that and hung on to it. I found an amazing quote from Paul. This is from the same interview with Jonathan Wingate for Record Collector. Wingate asks about Mary, and Paul just opens up about her. He says, I've got this one particularly strong image of her on her bike on a snowy night. And she was pedaling off through this deep snow to go and deliver a baby. It was a very strong memory. And you think, that's pretty cool. Took some doing. Hmm. And then the payoff would be that the young couple would come back with the baby to see the midwife a couple of weeks later. And so they'd have a cup of tea at our house. And they'd be so grateful to her. So those kind of things impressed me in my childhood. And I think those are all things that made me who I am. Riding her bike Bicycle through the snow, snow yeah. to go deliver a baby. Like, total superhero shit. You can understand why he worships her. She deserves a lot of the credit for how Paul turned out as an adult. Or at least, like, the good Paul, 
you know, when Paul lives up to what he wants to be. Yeah. I think he's, and Jim too. I mean, you know, Jim set really good high moral standards for them too, for according sure. to the boys and, and everybody else yeah. too. You know, although I'm sure Jim had his shortcomings and flaws and he was just a guy too. And Yeah. Yeah, so Mary's definitely the archetype of the working woman. Something else that I'd just like to mention is Paul's guilt or, you know, what I perceive to be Paul's guilt about his mother's death specifically related to her workload. Um, Unfortunately, I'm paraphrasing here because I wasn't able to locate this specific quote, but um, the gist of it is that Paul was discussing how hard Mary worked at her nursing job. And then he added that at the end of the day, she had to come home and take care of Paul and his brother, Mike, which was a huge hardship for her. And that's why she died of a stress related illness. I took away from that, that essentially on some level, he believes he's responsible for Mary's death, perhaps not consciously, but that's essentially what he said. Is that it was mm-hmm. his fault. Mm-hmm. So that's something he's carrying around with him all the time. That's you know important to to know about yeah. this person. Well, and that could that gives a lot of context to why he celebrates the working woman so much in his songs. He sees it as very heroic, but also that they deserve better. You know, they deserve to have their needs taken care of as well. I do think he has a lot of guilt, just general guilt that he walks around with. And the thing is, we don't know that much about Mary. I mean, we don't really know what kind of mother she was. We have some recollections from Paul and some from Mike. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to get a sense of what a woman was like that we've never heard. We've never seen footage of her. We don't know. You know, we just don't know. Yeah. And also she was gone from the boys' lives when they were so little. So we don't know if she was, if she guilted them. We don't know if she played up the martyr thing. Mm-hmm. She could have never complained about anything ever in her life. Right. Or she could have bitched nonstop. Like, we honestly don't know. We really just don't know. Right. It could have either been she was vocally complaining about her workload and the boys heard it and internalized it that way. Or maybe she only said something once in a while and most of the time she didn't complain. Or maybe she never complained. And they still, or at least Paul, still internalized some guilt just about how hard she worked because she basically worked until she died. It wasn't yeah. necessarily the cause of her illness. Um, cancer is stress related, but it's also hereditary. So I mean, Paul, it's you everywhere. didn't give your mom cancer. Yeah, right. yeah. Like children don't <laughs> give their parents cancer. It's okay. You yes. didn't do it. And also, you didn't ask to be born. Your parents chose to have you. And when you're a child, they have to take care of you. It's their job. Well, my question is, what did Jim and Mary fight about? Yeah, be- because that whatever they fought about is probably what Paul internalized. Yeah. Oh, I just want to read a quote from Paul, uh, again, in Many Years From Now by Barry Miles, where he's talking about Linda, 
and his impressions of her when they first started dating and hanging out intensely. He said, her womanliness impressed me. I'd never actually known anyone who was quite so much a woman. Linda was a very good mother. It was one of the things that impressed me about her was that she had the woman thing down. She seriously looked after her daughter. It seemed very organized to me in a slightly disheveled way. She was very kind-hearted, too. So that finished it all off. And there was this slight rebelliousness. And I didn't have to hide the fact that I was smoking pot because I didn't have to pretend. So, you know, again, we were talking about Mary, her as an archetype of, of women, what Paul, you know, admires in women, what his expectations are from a woman. All of that is baked into this quote right here. Yeah. She was a good mother. She seriously looked after her daughter. You know, she's a hard worker. Yeah. She seemed organized, but also slightly disheveled, right? Yeah, so human. Right. She's, she runs a tight ship, but she's also warm. Yeah. And then she's kind-hearted. And he mentions the rebelliousness. Yeah. So this is the, the, all the themes that we've hit with all of our women here. Yeah. Um, and the fact that he's like, and I didn't have to hide that I was smoking pot. So I could be, I could do all of my stuff in front of her too. I didn't have to hide. I didn't have to go off, you know, for boys night to do, you know, the fun stuff or anything, anything like that. Right. Yeah. He could do the fun stuff with her or at least around her. <laughs> exactly. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I think the pot stuff is slight allusion to Jane cause she didn't, <laughs> she didn't Jane like wasn't it. into drugs. Yeah. yeah. But, um, we can see here that like Linda comes to embody all of the ideals that Paul has that he's taken from his mom, along with Mary, Linda becomes another sort of figure in his catalog. Yeah. Like an ideal woman figure. Yeah. So again, Paul idolized both his mother and his father. He, um, he did idolize Jim for being a committed, involved father, which everyone agrees he was, especially for the era. For Mary, obviously she's Paul's mother, and so the role of mother holds a special significance to him. I think people often write it off as just Paul misses his mommy and wants his mommy, but also nurses and midwives pop up repeatedly in his writing. And I think because Mary earned a living as a caretaker, it does give caretaking a special dignity and reverence to Paul. I think Paul definitely sees caring for children, parenting, and nursing as, like, respectable, hard, important work. Yeah. So with that, we'd like to talk about some of Paul's mother's songs. What does she get for all the love she gave you?
we have a great quote from Paul about this song. From an interview with Billboard magazine in 2001, he says of daytime, nighttime suffering, that's a pro-woman song. <laughs> what mm-hmm. does she get for all of this? Daytime, nighttime suffering. It's like the plight of women. You were saying about the Beatles stuff and my stuff being humanistic. And I say that's what I would be most proud of, as would any artist. McCartney called the song one of its favorites in 1984 interview with Oprah Winfrey, which we just heard. And he has also mentioned it as a favorite in subsequent interviews. And Lynn McCartney has mentioned it as a favorite as well. Thank you to the McCartney Project website for that info. I actually think this is one of Paul's best songs. It's a really overlooked classic in his catalog. I also feel like it's one of his best. And I love that he said he's proud of most of his work being humanistic. And I would agree with him that this song is humanistic. To me, it evokes mothers and women in relationships with men and both, actually. And it's another song where I, as a woman, feel seen for the overlooked labor that women are usually just kind of tasked with by default just to keep their families going. And society at large does not really talk about this or question it. Um, It's just kind of a given. And I like that Paul sees that and he acknowledges it and he acknowledges the unfairness of it. I also like that he uses lyrical dissonance, um, and that's the practice of pairing a darker subject matter with a beautifully constructed and upbeat pop melody, (laughs) in this case. Yeah. To me, it compels me to really dial in, stop what I'm doing, really be present and focus on the story. The lyrics are really effective in conveying what a woman goes through in relationships with men, in performing all of the labor of caring for a family, And I love this line where it says, where are the prizes for the game she entered with little chance of much success? Pretty poignant, I'd say. (laughs) The game, the game she entered with little chance of much success to me is a nod to the fact that like the game is rigged. Yes. I always take that to mean in the business world or, you know, the, the work world or whatever you would call it in those days. I don't know. The rat race. Yeah. Right? <laughs> rat race is good. <laughs> that game is rigged. That's a reference to like the glass ceiling or whatever. Yeah. It's kind of a catch 22. I mean, it still is for women, you know, but this song is written in 1978, 79. Yeah. So, I mean, we're talking about 40 years ago, yeah. 40 longer than that, actually over 40 years ago, you know, thinking about what the um, landscape of the working world was like, you know, you want to talk about a glass ceiling now. I mean, it was more, way it was, worse. It was way worse then. So, um, it, you know, it's kind of a, you know, kind of a trap in, yeah. in a lot of ways because if you're a woman who wants a career and you give up time with your family to make that career and then you end up not getting anywhere, yeah, it's kind of like, well, what's the point of doing that? You know, when you do work outside of the, the home, you do sacrifice some things and vice versa you know if you stay at home you you're sacrificing your career so there's a dilemma as old as time uh, for women but yeah and it's a tough choice to make because yeah on one hand you know like you said you give up having that home life you give up having those really strong connections with your loved ones in a way because work takes so much of your bandwidth 
But then it's like, if you actually have something you're really passionate about that you wanted to do outside of the home. You don't want to give that up either. You don't want to give that up. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And a lot of people, you know, don't have a choice. I mean, in both directions. Some people have to work outside the home because you need the two incomes. Some people can't find a second job. Some people can't pay enough to have somebody watch the kids. You're not going to make enough to make it worthwhile to leave the house. So all the issues that people in that situation where it's more expensive to pay for childcare than it is for one parent to stay at home. Absolutely. So that's just dependent on like what the economy is like, what the um, climate is in your particular field, how much, education experience you're bringing to it and then again also you've got glass ceiling issues and yeah um you know all kinds of other problems well there's another part of this song just a stanza that i um is really inspirational and empowering to me it's the stanza come on river flow through me let your love for your people be you are the river i am the stream flow mighty river through me to me i feel like he's positioning himself as this little stream and the woman as a mighty river so it's the power that he sees within women and when he says <laughs> let your love for your people be i think he's giving her permission to give herself a break and set boundaries meaning you love your family uh, but you should also love yourself like that's what i took away from that line i like that read Thank you. Like that. <laughs> that was my dryer telling Time's me. Time's that- up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's like three or four different things going on in this song. At some point, there's like a Beach Boy style breakdown. Yeah. It turns into a dirge at some point. He's like <laughs> calling his ancestors, like, holy river. To me, it sounds more like he's, you know, again, like he's summoning the gods of the, you know, like the river gods or something. Um <laughs> And that's a totally valid read, too, because it's Paul McCartney. So probably it could probably be either or both. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, and he does do a lot of spirits. Yeah, he does do a lot of calling of the spirits of nature or. Yeah, yeah, he does. does. Call back to ancestors. And he does a lot of that in his songs. So that's totally valid to me, too. Yeah, I think both things can be true. (laughs) I agree. I like both reads. They both they both work in there. It, I'm really kind of obsessed with it now. It's, it's yeah. a really great song. It really is. And it is musically interesting, too. Like you said, yeah. there's a lot of twists and turns and a lot of hooks and really interesting yeah. things going on. So it keeps you musically interested. It Like, the lyrical For dissonance sure. is awesome. And I love that Paul loves this song. What does she get? So Mama's Little Girl is really about the baby. Although I like how he sort of gives a a nod to the mother as well. I mean, I think if it's Daddy's Little Girl, then it has a totally different connotation to it. Yeah. Mama's Little Girl makes it more, just keeps it more in like the girl power, feminine (laughs) strength kind of. Yeah kind of place instead of like you know daddy's little girl is more of like daddy's to spoil yeah right? or protect it, yeah. right exactly one or the yeah. other or both mm-hmm. it's a different yeah. energy that's for it sure it is it is an empowerment yeah. for the little girl that's given to her by her mother this song has a purity to it that's just incredible it's unlike anything in the beatles catalog 
this is a type of song that could really descend into like twee, but it never does. The <clears throat> lyrics are awesome. Picking up a mountain. Singing like a skylark is very unique, but even like yeah. looking like a rosebud. I mean, there's yeah, there's a lot of corny ways to say, you know, your rosy cheeks, but like looking like a rosebud is it's just more poetic. And of course, even though it's a baby or like, you know, like a toddler this is yeah. definitely like a little girl. Yeah, I think um, of under two. Picking up a mountain elevates the song into something a little bit different, you know, mm-hmm. because then it becomes more about like, she's right. not just a, a cute little thing that, that daddy wants to spoil. No, she's going to be a great woman. I always assume this song is to Stella because it's written when Stella's, a, you know, Stella's like two years old. Right. If you look at pictures of Stella when she's really young, white blonde hair and the rosy cheeks... Like, I, I think this is yeah. this has Stella written all over <clears throat> it. And better give me some time for this heart of mine, because I just can't take it all in. I think that I is know. just so sweet, so heartfelt, <clears throat> and it's amazing <clears throat> that he's able to find the words to express that kind of emotion. Yeah, it is beautiful. Yeah. Another another motherhood song that I wanted to bring up is this beautiful song from the Liverpool Oratorio called The World You're Coming Into. Mm. It's in the seventh movement. This is the song that Mary D. <laughs> um, she's expecting a child and this is a song she's singing for that child to prepare them for. Yeah, for the world. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, this is one of these tearjerker songs mm. that he writes. Um, the world you're coming into is no easy place to enter. Every day is haunted by the echoes of the past. Mm. Funny thoughts and wild, wild dreams will find their way into your mind. The clouds that hang above us may be full of rain and thunder, but in time they slide away to find the sun still there. Lazy days and wild, wild flowers will bring some joy into your heart. And I will always love you. I'll welcome you into this world. Um, yeah, that is a tearjerker. <laughs> yeah, it's just a beautiful, it's a beautiful poem. In the documentary for the Liverpool Oratorio, he said he was imagining what a mother would think about their child and want to say to their child, which I love because yeah. Paul's obviously a parent. Yeah. But he was like, well, I wasn't drawing on my own experience as a parent. So I'm trying to write from the experience of a woman who is pregnant and bringing a life into the world. Yeah. And what would I say to that child? Let's talk about Lady Madonna. obviously one of Paul's more famous Beatles works. Um, It's often thought of, and Paul often refers to it as a tribute to women. In many years from now, Paul told Barry Miles, it began as the Virgin Mary, then it was a working class woman, of which obviously there's millions in Liverpool. There's lots of Catholics in Liverpool, and when they have a baby, I think they see 
a big connection between themselves and the Virgin Mary with her baby. So the original concept was the Virgin Mary, but it quickly became symbolic of every woman. I know what he means mm-hmm. <laughs> with the, uh, the working class Catholicism. There is a lot of devotion to the Virgin Mary. If you're not exposed to all that weird stuff, then this might sound really bizarre. Like he, like he just has a fetish, like a virgin whore complex or something like that. <laughs> but um, I think he's just talking about like Catholic iconography and stuff like that. And the mm-hmm. thing is that like Catholicism is really, really heavy in iconography. So I get that. I like that he took that and made it into a pop song and like a celebration of working women. Like yeah. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a, a great place to go with that, that a lot yeah. of guys would not. Um, I agree. I mean, again, I think there's a lot of Mary infused in this. Oh yes. Um, and then there was a second inspiration too, which, which also tracks because uh, you know, we know Paul picks things from here and things from there. Fats Domino is part of the inspiration of this too. Yeah, he has absolutely. nothing to do with the Virgin Mary. You know? <laughs> um. <laughs> <But> musically, <laughs> definitely inspired musically. There is a cool quote from Paul um, in National Geographic from 2017 there's a portrait basically of, of a Polynesian woman with three young children and she was nursing one of them. And the caption said mountain Madonna it says, sometimes you see pictures of mothers and go, she's a good mother. You could just tell there's a bond. And it just affected me that photo. It, it was that image coupled with that word Madonna that just struck the writer or the poet in him. So he pulled in all those elements, a Polynesian woman on a mountain and the Virgin Mary and Fats Domino. And he brought it all in and made this incredible song. That's really sweet that he was so emotionally affected by that image at such a young age. I love how much energy this song contains. Speaking of Fats Domino, I think he channeled that kind of energy really well. Um, And then content-wise, it's him really being aware of how much a woman, a mother, has to carry. But it's also a celebration of how amazing he finds her. Yeah, yeah. So I appreciate when a man can see what a woman is going through and acknowledge it. Um, But I like that this song is less a lament and more just honoring mothers for their hard work. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely celebration. Yeah. And also kind of just looking at it in awe and saying, how do you do it all from a place of amazement? And it's not, it, it never comes off like a condescending pat on the back, you know, again, it could be yeah. like, you could do a really, a really saccharine version of this. Mm. And Lady Madonna is not saccharine at all. It's oh like, no, it's like a rollicking good time. And she's not bitching. She's not <laughs> yeah. crying. She's not feeling sorry for herself. She's yeah. just getting on with, with business. And Yeah. When she does get to take a breather, she's listening to the music playing in her head. That's right. That's right. It's interesting because it does sound like Linda in a lot of ways. It really does. But I know that they weren't really a thing. Yeah, they weren't an item yet. At that time. They knew each other. Vaguely. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's obviously not written about her since we just did the math and we know that they're not really an item yet or anything. Yeah. But it does kind of suggest that he had a pre-existing image of the ideal woman and she kind of came in and fit into that slot yeah uh but just to go back to the the catholicism for a second it is weird that paul is playing with catholic iconography in this song and it bothers 
Absolutely no one. There was such insane religious fervor and controversy over Madonna. Oh, yeah. When she came out with... Like a prayer and... Well, the 80s is often referred to as the satanic panic. People were freaking out. Like, evangelical Christianity was really kind of ramping up. Like, their sort of attack on (laughs) pop culture. It's just, it's funny that... I've never heard anybody suggest that the song is sacrilegious in any way at all. Even though Paul's a pretty outspoken atheist throughout the 60s. Yeah. Like, he don't give a fuck. Mm -hmm. You can ask him about religion. He'll tell you all about it. And he's really critical of the religious right in the States in particular when he's asked about it. He is. He does (laughs) not give a shit. Yeah. And yet here he is playing with... Catholicism and Eleanor Rigby and Lady Madonna and Let It Be and nobody has shit to say about it. Like I know, I guess (laughs) they think he's a good boy. I don't know. He has like whatever Maureen Cleave said. He has the face of a delinquent choir boy or something. Yeah. (laughs) Anybody else did it, or if they packaged it in just a certain way, it would be considered extremely iconoclastic and disrespectful. Um, but for some reason, the way he packaged it or the way he presented it, it didn't offend people. He really likes this one. You can see why. Yeah. It must be real fun to play and sing. Yeah, it sounds fun to play and sing. <laughs> and as you said, a, a, like, a very strange song for like a 23-year-old man to write. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or how, when a, it's 65, so a very strange song for a 25-year-old man to write. Yeah. Boy, you don't know about babies on the breast and yeah, people making ends meet. And what are you talking about? <laughs> I guess he does. Actually, having said that, that is his lived experience up until like the last five years of his life. Like he's only been rich for like five years. Yeah, that's true. Your day breaks, your mind aches. You find that all her words of kindness linger on when she no longer needs you. She wakes up, she makes up, she takes her time and doesn't feel she has to hurry. She no longer needs you, and in her eyes you see nothing. No sign of love behind the tears, cried for no one. A love that should have lasted years. So um, the last song we want to talk about is For No One. It is one of Paul's favorite and most acclaimed Beatles songs from the Revolver album in 1966. This is a song that didn't fit into any of the categories that we discussed before. It's not about the workplace. It's not about a woman's workload. It's not about a mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it didn't really fit into our feminine spirit songs either. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is more of a girlfriend song, but I feel like for no one is different and it's set apart from the girlfriend songs that Paul McCartney writes of which he has hundreds, probably yeah. hundreds of love songs and girlfriend songs yep. um, for no one is different because there is a character in the song mm-hmm. and the character is presumed to be based on Jane Asher. Yep. But again, I think what sets this apart from a typical love song where the man as the singer and songwriter is talking to his girlfriend. This is more where Paul is taking a step back Mm -hmm. 
and he's observing this woman, this character, as a third party. Yeah. And he's speaking to himself in the second person, (laughs) which is a very, very interesting device, not typical at all for um, a pop song or really for any kind of song. Um, It's very unique. And it gives the song a sort of detachment which is also sort of the subject matter of the song, right? It's a relationship that's falling apart and there's detachment between the lovers and really well done. Like, like the touch of an expert filmmaker kind of using imagery to convey your story. Really, like really Mm. next level songwriting. Yeah, it is next level. It's really innovative. Paul is extremely outside of the box. In his songwriting, instead of it being like a, oh, I'm sad because my woman doesn't love me anymore. Me, me, me. He's actually empathizing with the woman who's falling out of love. And this is obviously Jane, too. So he's empathizing with the woman that he thinks is falling out of love with him, which is just fucking fantastic. (laughs) Right. They kept going for two more years after this song was released. Yeah. So, you know, they had a lot of just up and down in their relationship. It was pretty tumultuous. They broke up and made up on multiple occasions during five years, which for young people, as young as they were, is a pretty long time. Yeah. I mean, it's not like he was waiting around between their breakups. He was moving on. He was fucking people, but they came back to each other multiple times. I'm sure she was fucking people, too. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I hope so. I hope. Yeah. God, what a garbage boyfriend he was. (laughs) But then, but then with a song like this, you can also see that he, he also has like a real maturity to him. Mm hmm. No matter how delusional he might be at times or no matter how head in the sand he is about certain things, like, he's not stupid and he does actually see her. Yeah. And he's able to talk to himself. Like, the, I feel like this song is like real talk between Paul mm-hmm. and himself. Yeah, he's saying, dude, she's not into you anymore. <laughs> to himself, which is really insightful, actually, because most people in the throes of a breakup or an impending breakup are going to go into denial mode and be like, no, no, the love is still there. We got to keep working on it. And he's just like, nope, she's moving on, dude. Um, I like the tears cried for no one line. Cause when I think about that, I think about someone who's crying because they don't want to hurt the person they're about to leave. Mm. And they may be grieving for the connection they lost with the person they're leaving too, because they remember okay, at one point I was in love. Where did it go? What happened? You know, like, this is terrible. Like, my future is kind of rocked now. I have to shake up my whole life and start over, start from scratch. And you have, there's a lot that goes into a breakup, um, um, you know, of either a marriage or just a dating relationship where you have social support on both sides of the yeah. equation that gets yeah. kind of sometimes fractured pretty badly. So... There's a lot tied into a breakup. It's not just like, oh, I'm just leaving. Bye. It's not an easy decision to make, even if you know it's the right one. Well, and again, with this particular couple, with with Jane and Paul, like, it's living in her house. Yeah. And then at some point, she's living in his house. Like, they, they're basically cohabitating for most of their relationship. So yeah, he didn't even wait though too they're long to move in. <laughs> both 
international stars who yeah, are you know <laughs> yeah right like they're not they're not really home much and also you know paul's living with jane's entire family her brother and, and her parents so yeah that's a little bit of a different situation than just a couple living alone together For but sure. the point being like their worlds are enmeshed you know there's oh, like yeah. they like in they have a lot of like institutional connections and whatever even though they weren't married so they didn't have to deal with a divorce yeah it, they still had to extract each other from each other's lives and that must have been messy and difficult and painful for sure and we're not even at that point here i mean that's yeah. still a couple of years down the road at this point they've been dating what three years or yeah the song was written in march 1966 while he was on holiday with her in switzerland and it was originally called why did it die why did it die? <laughs> it's so dramatic. <laughs> Why did it die? Oh my god. Why did it die? Did Morrissey write that? It's like yeah. your inner Morrissey wrote, Why did it die? Why? Why did it die? <laughs> I just wrote a Morrissey song. Thank you. You're welcome, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I love that he wrote it on holiday with her yeah, in Switzerland. That must have been a great holiday. <laughs> <laughs> Although there are pictures from that holiday and they look super duper close. Although that's hilarious about Jane and Paul is every picture of them, yeah. they're wrapped around each other. exactly. Yeah. So, so they must have been like fighting, 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 making up. They must have had hot makeups or something. I don't oh, know. God. Yeah. We pulled a quote that we think is kind of relevant. The mood of it kind of fits with the song, in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> um, even though Paul is talking about their relationship, like sort of in retrospect of, you know, like why they didn't work out. And he said, mm-hmm. this is, again, to Barry Miles and many years from now, he says, I liked her a lot and we got on very well. She was a very intelligent and very interesting person, but I just never clicked one of those indefinable things about love is some people you click with and some people who you should maybe click with, you don't. Whatever. Which is like a total erasure of Jane. They should have they should have edited out the whatever, though, because yeah, whatever. Like, that makes him sound like a dick. It does. I mean, it makes me sad like to hear him frame it that way because we have witness testimony from Alistair Taylor that Paul was crying on his shoulder when they broke up, you know, their final, final breakup. And that so many people around them witnessed them being very loving and close for years. I know that he really downplayed his relationship with Jane in many years from now because Linda was ill and he was doing it out of respect for her. But from just like a historical perspective, now it I feel like it's given people you know, who examine this stuff kind of like tacit approval to just sort of overlook that relationship and how important it was. Um, yeah. It's disrespectful. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, what he said was fair enough. You know, he, he did call her very yeah. intelligent and very interesting person, which she is. I mean, he's right. He never says anything yeah, personally her. bad about her. Ever. Yeah. Yeah. It's just instead of saying love, he says liked, and she was fine, but I didn't click. And I'm like, if you didn't click with someone, why were you with them for five years? It's just, it's dismissive. It's, it's, yeah. it's, yeah, it's, it's terribly like dismissive. It yeah, it's like sweeping her under the rug a little bit. Like, eh, it wasn't that big of a deal. Um, 
I wish he'd just been comfortable saying something like, she was my first love, yes, and we were into each other, hardcore, but it just didn't work out because we just wanted different things at different times. Like, that's all he had to say. That would have been a perfectly respectable thing to Jane and Linda. It wouldn't have downplayed Jane's importance, but it would have been like, look, this was my young guy relationship. You could have said that, too. (laughs) We were very young. It was the first serious relationship either one of us really had. Yeah, and maybe maybe saying that they didn't click is his his way, way of, saying of saying that it just didn't work out. Like it, it right. ultimately it wasn't a perfect match. It should have, yeah. you know, we seemed like we were a good match, but we didn't really match up. Like it didn't fit. Yeah. But you know, click is a different connotation. Click means like there's no spark or something. Yeah, that's exactly what I was getting at. It's like. Yeah. He's just kind of saying like, oh, I didn't feel that much for her or something. Well, that's how that, that's how it comes off. And yeah. so that's not cool. Yeah, exactly. Like, and we know you're lying too. Yeah, seriously. Well, and then like another thing I think about just the, the whole Beatles narrative ramifications of him himself downplaying that relationship is kind of big, in my opinion. Or at least it's kind of a contention for me because... Some people suggest that Paul was just with Jane for social climbing purposes. And again, it's like, no, he was into her as a person. She was interesting. Um, They bonded over Chaucer. (laughs) So they were both book nerds who loved old books. And um, they were both intellectually curious, artistic people. And were both also pretty flashy and cool and charismatic during that time in their lives. They were a good match. They were a good couple. It's just that for the long term, they were not going to be. And that's okay too. Nothing wrong with that. I don't think he'd be writing a song that he gave the working title. Why did it die? If nothing clicked. (laughs) Right. Well, and and by saying, you know, we didn't click whatever. It's definitely the implication is that like, He just got what he wanted out of her, and then he was done, and he was like, bye, whatever. Yeah. It doesn't make him look good. Right. And it also downplays how hurt he was by the breakup, because it makes it look like she was just like the hurt party, and he was just fine and moved right along. I like that his voice, his vocal performance in the song conveys the mood of the song. Um, But he still packs that McCartney vocal punch. But he really matches the mood. And he's so good at that. Like, that's definitely one of his trademarks. So our main takeaway is that Paul's ability to create vivid, distinctive female characters in his music really speaks to his strength as a writer. Not just a composer, but a creative writer who puts care and attention into his stories and the imaginary people who inhabit them. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I kind of, I think about a few common tropes or pitfalls that sometimes male writers fall into when they're writing about women. Sometimes you'll get really shallow descriptions of women that mostly focus on their physical appearance. Um, Yep. I've seen passages in novels where the male writer puts a really strong emphasis on like the boobs or the butt, you know, like any kind of sexualized (laughs) body part. Um, There's a joke going around a few years ago. She breasted boobily down the stairs. (laughs) Like that, like I've seen that kind of writing in real 
novels that are not porn. It's just like the breasts are the main character. <laughs> yeah. And the woman's like a secondary character. <laughs> that are following behind her bosoms. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> like the bosoms are leading her around. And then when they do uh, go over character traits of a female character, it kind of serves to advance the plot for the male protagonist. So yep. you get you get like a manic pixie dream girl love interest, or you get a total harpy who's like an obstacle to the man and what he's trying to do. Or a, quote, badass bitch who, quote, learns to love because of the man in the story. Oh, like the bad girl that gets tamed. Yeah, that kind of thing. Or you see a lot of shallow conversations between two female characters that are either focusing on their adoration of the men in the story, or they're being, quote unquote, catty to one another, competing for the men. So Paul, to me, does not fall into these tropes and pitfalls when he writes about women, and this is how I think he gets it right. I noticed that in most of the songs we discuss today, with the exception of Temporary Secretary, and we know why that's the exception, (laughs) (laughs) the woman's thoughts, feelings, and inner world are central and essential to the narrative. They are not surface level, and the woman is written as a full human being. And I don't get the impression that Paul has to try really hard to write a woman. Like, he's not racking his brains. Like, how do I possibly write a woman? His writing is just natural. It just kind of flows. Yeah. Um, The women's personalities are multidimensional and their experience something real and relatable. Yeah. Um, They don't exist to advance the story of a man. They're central characters. Mm-hmm. Um, when men are brought into the story, I think he uses them to take a hard and honest look at how men can impact women's lives and how women are treated. And he writes women who are competent and capable um, and who are fighting for control and agency of their own. And like That's a central theme we hit on, and his female characters are competent, capable characters. When he does write women who are victims of oppression, it's empathetic and sympathetic. It's not exploitative. It's not condescending. It's not romanticizing yeah. or fetishizing the trauma in any way. Um, yeah. It's a very dignified and respectful approach towards the female protagonist. It seems to have the intention to build the person up and help them feel less alone or more empowered or at least seen and understood. So what I think of Paul as a writer, a writer of a narrative or a writer of a song, his writing is just better in quality when it comes to writing women. (laughs) Yeah, better than the typical... Yeah, the typical man writing woman song, story... Yeah, well, definitely in rock and roll. Oh, for sure, yeah. It's not all from the male gaze. He not only avoids the tacky, ham-fisted tropes I mentioned before, but he just writes artfully and with finesse. He builds a compelling yet believable and relatable narrative. He crafts the story so artfully that the listener can emotionally connect with and empathize with the protagonist. He has excellent taste in his use of descriptors of the protagonist's world and in our life, which really help the listener visualize what the character is seeing mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. feel what they're feeling. Like you've mentioned before, so many of these songs could have turned into total twee or been way too heavy-handed. He didn't do that. He's not othering the women simply because they're women. Instead, he shows that he's acutely aware of and is honest about the differences in how men and women are treated in the world and how that impacts a woman's life. And really, I think he exhibits many of these strengths of writing in a majority of his songs. 
even the ones that don't focus on a female protagonist. I think there's a high level of emotional intelligence to so much of his songwriting. Absolutely. Successful, effective writers are able to distill complex thoughts into simple language. Yeah. We know that one of Paul's great strengths as a songwriter is to take uh, complex musical ideas and turn them into accessible music. And I think he does the same thing with his lyrics. You know, what can you say about him? He's a great songwriter. Yeah, I'd have to agree. Well, thank you, Paul McCartney, for seeing women as people and for choosing, you know, female characters in some of your most interesting and compelling work. Not just like the trendy, sexy rock and roll version of like, what's a what's a cool woman, you know? Yeah. Even women who don't have choices still live lives and still matter still work and still matter Mm -hmm. exactly and a woman's worth is not determined by her mobility or her affluence Mm -hmm. or her level of choice i mean women matter regardless of their life situation regardless of class economic standing lifestyle background he sees women as full people like that's really what stands out to me and every woman as a full person, regardless of what she's going through in life. There are people out there who appreciate it. As always, thanks for listening to Another Kind of Mind. Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Insta, and Tumblr. And if you haven't already and are so inclined, please leave us a positive review on iTunes. It really does help our visibility and brings other Beatles fans to us. And if you have any requests or suggestions for future episodes, things you'd like to hear discussed on ACOM, please get in touch with us on social media or send us an email at acompodcast at gmail.com. We like to cover unusual, neglected, and overlooked topics on our show, and we're always open to new ideas and happy to give our original analysis on a variety of subjects. Oh, that sounded really good. Thanks, Talia. <laughs> You're welcome, Phoebe. All Thanks. right, till next time. Till next time, everybody. Bye. Bye.